stuff. Welcome to episode 126 of the Good Stuff Kids podcast. I'm your host, Mike Mason, and you've found the show where we get to know the creators of certified and bona fide good stuff for kids and families. And on today's show, I talk to John Demers, who is the creator of History's Heroes, The Rusty Bucket Kids. And John is a fantastic storyteller. If you're a fan of the West Wing, you're going to want to listen to this, and you can hear all about John's role in the West Wing. Yeah, that's right. He was in the West Wing. Were you in the West Wing? I wasn't in the West Wing, but this is a great conversation all about Rusty Bucket Kids, which is approaching its 10th anniversary. If you need to reach me for anything, you can find me at mike at goodstuffpod.com or on all of your social media at goodstuffpod. Talk to you at the end of the show. Enjoy John Demers. Welcome to my new buddy, John Demers. John, thank you so much for taking the time to be with me today. We should set the scene. You're in North Carolina at a standing desk. I'm in the Bay Area at a sitting desk, and we got a lot to talk about. <laughs> I, your weather's probably better than mine today, trust me. Uh, it's a little cloudy, but what can I say? But warmer. A little bit warmer, perhaps. perhaps. So where in North Carolina are you? I, I'm actually real, really close to the capital, Raleigh. Um, okay. I'm in a, a town called Apex and a community known as New Hill. New Hill. And uh, Apex has been, over the last few years, considered one of the top places to live in the country f- with under 50,000 people, except now we're going to be over 50,000 people yeah, because well, of it. Yeah, and after this interview, there's going to be like millions flocking. Um, but Apex is a big part of your story, and we're going to get to that shortly. But um, you've had a, a, a an interesting and, and and varied career, I would say. We talked a little bit uh, just a moment ago. You had a limousine company and the first licensed, we should say, because we are nothing if not rule followers, the first licensed limo company and spent a lot of time in theater. So let's pick up with uh yeah. with some of the the acting things that you've done well you know that's that you know as we talked about in the in the green room uh-huh. um <laughs> there there where, where there weren't cameras <coughs> pardon me sure but uh you know i i got my acting career started as a a tween and i was 11 and 12 and uh, the very first thing I ever did was Annie Get Your Gun, and it was at Raleigh Little Theater, which historically is the oldest public works community theater in the country. It was built in, in the 1930s um, and uh, as part of FDR's New Deal and as one of the public works projects that went on all over the country. And so anyway, I, I – I did that small boy role. You ran on the stage at the very beginning and yelled, Indians, Indians, Indians. And that was it. I then got introduced to David Wood, Ira David Wood III. That's how I knew him. He was in his early 20s. He was in that first graduating class of the now well-respected and worldwide known University of North Carolina School of the Arts, who have put out a number of people that have worked professionally in the industry at high levels. And so uh, I got, I kind of went from that uh, chorus position at Raleigh Little Theater over to his theater at the time, uh, which was getting started. And, um, and so I, at that point, learned more about the craft. He really took on a bunch of us tween teenagers, and there were a number of us. 
and uh, some have also continued to go on and work professionally in in projects with folks like Sylvester Stallone. Um, one of the people that I mentioned, or maybe I didn't mention it to you, I spoke to someone else earlier today, uh, Terrence Mann, oh, cool. who went on to Broadway. He mm-hmm. he and I shared a refrigerator box as a dressing room for one of David's <laughs> projects because they were both at school at the same time. They were friends. They uh-huh. still are. And uh, and so it, that was these guys. I learned so much from. I mean, they were in their mid twenties, and I was like going into twelve, thirteen. Mm-hmm. And so, after doing that one show at Raleigh Little Theater and doing some things with David, I then went back to Raleigh Little Theater and did the role of Artful Dodger in Oliver, cool. um, which was my first big role. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got nominated for an award uh, from the theater, which had been doing for awards for a long time, and they didn't have a you know, kid award then. So they were just in with the adults, but I'd, I'd worked hard at it. My mom took extra time to help me with the role, but she was well suited to do it because she had worked with Rogers and Hammerstein, you know, and toured with them and known them and done, you know, thousands of performances of different shows like South Pacific and, and others. And so, you know, I, I had someone that had this really great professional background and so i she really made sure i did really good and and excelled at that role and i did and i did a bunch of paid commercials locally for a while for an agent and then i turned 16 i got braces and i was done (laughs) (laughs) well that that is brilliant timing first of all on your end your that was great comedy and uh yeah i think it happens to a lot of us you know my uh my athletic dreams died when i turned 16 so um when i had to earn money at the real money i it it all went away yeah that's oh man what a bummer but uh you stuck with it so you you had some uh it sounds like you went away from acting and and sort of the 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 filmmaking movie what you know scene for a while then came back to it um when did you so and people may if they were to look you up may think that you're recognizable for something in particular that a lot of folks in uh in my generation um and and sort of my parents really um really loved and uh I'll let you talk about that a little bit. And we are going to get to some of the, the kids stuff because you did do an amazing project that I really want to get into. But, um, okay. what do, uh, what, what do you think I'm getting at here? Um, probably the show that, that, uh, it, it wasn't how I got my, um, uh, screen actors guild after card. I, I got that working on a feature, but having gotten it, um, one of the things that enabled me to do was to reach out and get more agents. The, the way the industry worked um, in the late 90s, uh, and I got back in it in the mid-90s, but in the late 90s, you had agents in various markets. If you had the resources, and I was fortunate I did, that I could travel to L.A. or travel to Atlanta or New York to make it to callbacks, uh, then you know I, I, I was in good shape. And so I was reaching out to uh, agencies and casting directors up in the Baltimore, Washington, D.C. area because for a number of reasons. One, I was doing corporate video, and I used to have a security clearance when I was in, in military and government work. And although it was no longer effective, it was helpful in getting some of that corporate work where they needed people who could pass a a certain level of a security clearance to do a training video. In other words, we weren't getting real access to it, but we, we could participate in it at a certain level, uh, and we needed to at least get through that. Sort of like a contractor building a building that's going to be doing top secret. All those contractors don't have top secret clearances, but they get screened enough to know that 
to a certain point, they can do what they need to do to allow it get to the level. So th- that was that was sort of me. But in doing that, I ran into some of the uh, the the casting directors up there, and they had me fill out their paperwork uh, since I was in the union. You know, what are my skill sets? And several skill sets that I had that were became germane were I had had training in driving. Uh, doing executive protective work driving. I'd had some of the same training that people in the Secret Service get. Um, And and again, that had come about because I'd been doing limousine work. Prior to the limousine work, I had been in the government and military and service and had security clearances and been around VIPs. That continued on when I was in state government, when the former Queen Faisal of Saudi Arabia was here in North Carolina back in the early 90s. Uh, I was liaison between the state, the state department, North Carolina, and the official uh, Faisal family uh, when they came down for her surgery at Duke Hospital. I, I've had the wonderful opportunity to get to work in the different careers I've had at some of the highest levels. And, and I, I kind of attribute that to, at a very early age, people like David Wood, et cetera. You, you learned where you could be on stage and where you didn't need to be on stage. Uh-huh. And, and I always knew the difference between when you're in the crew and when you're in the performance. And so that suited me well then in my other careers, which again brought me around to where when I went back into state government and I'd had the training with the limousine services, et cetera, uh, I was asked to then get the more professional level I went back with a gun and a badge and not in law enforcement side, but then to again do uh, security work uh, within one of the members of the Council of State here in the Secretary of State's office. So that, again, you know, all that stuff just sort of like lent itself to a resume. Right. You know, uh, you know, Renaissance man, but all these things at a professional level get added to a resume. In this case, it was added to a resume up there on folks who were asked to cast the local regulars for the West wing Uh series. And that, that was one of that really working on that for three seasons really launched my career, opened doors for me in California because I was able to then go out there and actors like Michael O'Neill, who played agent Butterfield, you know, the head of the detail for, for, um, uh, the president, uh, which was played by Martin Sheen. He became a, a, you know, a, a cigar smoking buddy. You know, I mean, uh, I don't really smoke cigars, but they'd offer them and I'd take them and, you know, and I'd I'd hold it and I'd be like them, you know, because that's, you know, because I, you know, my job was to drive the presidential limousine. Uh And the reality was, is that in a few key positions, the consultant, uh, the former Secret Service agent Snow, who was their actual paid consultant for for making sure their stuff looked right to the Uh extent that it didn't interfere with their creative vision. Um, but he would, you know, he would run around, but, but with me, he found out real fast. He didn't have to tell me because I knew all the things like right. don't, but don't button your jacket. Cause you got to get to your guns. Even though we didn't have guns, you had to pretend like you, you could. Um, I, I knew that the windows had to be up on the car. Uh, when there were some folks who said, well, keep the windows down. We, that way we may be able to have a shot that we can use. And I thought there'd not never be a window down at yeah, a front. Not yeah, authentic. I, yeah. Right. And I didn't, I didn't get into the argument or the battle, but again, it was that experience and training that, that, that got me that position. And I got to work for three seasons driving the limousine that had, uh, 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 Martin Sheen and Michael O'Neill in it. 
Um, and of course my training allowed me to do the spin scene, uh, underneath the Lincoln Memorial. Uh, they they brought in all the black sand. We did the math calculation. It was really cool. Uh I, I had a blast. I got to know uh, uh, Tommy Shlami, who was directing uh, the cliffhanger for the end of season one into uh, uh, season two, mm-hmm. uh, which is where I really got to shine in what I did. Because uh, when there's the assassination attempt on President Bartlett's life, um, they had always set it up. And I had known this because of what I had been told by the, the, the director and the and the person responsible for vehicle movement and all that stuff and by the way for reality this is cool they actually hired the off-duty uh, motor unit from the white house detail wow so in other words one of the requirements at least then pre-9-11 were if you were going to go do things in washington that required the appearance of a motorcade running yeah. you really needed to hire the people that do the motorcades because yeah. the town doesn't need to know the difference between a movie crew and a movie film and a real dignitary because everything has to work the same. Right. So you want to hire the people that do that for their job every day in that town. Yeah. And so that was, that made it really easy because again, I had that experience working with the professionals that knew that when Martin found out that when Martin Sheen found that out, he decided that in the scene where then the assassination takes place, temp takes place, he's pushed into the car by Michael O'Neill and we, we peel away. Well, th- there's a cutaway for that. So it was always planned that then he and Michael would just, you know, leave. They'd be done. And we'd, yeah. they'd start getting the medium and wide shots of all of us pulling out of there with the motorcycles and the ambulance and all that. Well, Martin said he wanted to stay in, and ride in the back <laughs> while we did that. <laughs> hey, it was a good time. And, you know, he, he kind of said, are you okay with that, J.D.? And I said, but I'm, you know, whatever they tell me to do, you know, I am going to be just fine with, right. you know, I mean, and that's how I was. It didn't matter it, whether I agreed with anything ever on a set. I always did what I was told because yeah. as an actor, you just don't ha- as especially a day player. Yeah. You really don't have that kind of power. Right. And so, uh, I, I just did what I was told. Well, he then told, um, Tommy Shlami was directing that, that episode, uh, that, that end of season. And then the one that, that, that started the next season. And he just kind of said, you know, can, can we ride? And he then yeah. looks at me, are you, are you okay with that? And they kind of had a little powwow and yeah. like, okay, but you know, there's a real big bump there and we want them to really go because we want to see it like kind of rise up and yeah. go. And, you know, and Martin was like, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm already, that's fine. Buckle up. Let's go. So that's the, well, end, uh, yeah. The end of season one. He, mm-hmm. uh-huh. And he didn't buckle up. Oh, he bounced around. <laughs> he, he did. Yeah. But he laughed about it. I mean, he was like. It wasn't anybody's fault because he just he didn't realize he was really going to bounce around. Yeah, and, and he did. But he laughed. He was a good sport. Afterwards, we got out of the car and we took a picture together. That's the one that's on my IMDb page. Uh-huh. Um, and that was Michael O'Neill because and you can see he had a big smile. He was he was, he was still happy. he was loving it. Wow. So happy that, guy. So like, and then you, you had like a, a you've done a lot in the in the film and I don't I don't know how much more of the TV industry, but you had. You were sort of moving and shaking. You were wheeling and dealing. And then um, my understanding is you got a little bit sick. And uh, that sort of led you to reevaluate. So it's interesting. This is almost like a two-parter, right? Like we just did the first part, which is fascinating. Like the behind the scenes of like a TV show that a lot of people like hold dear and really, oh, really love. Still do. And still, still do, do. And go yeah. back and rewatch. Yeah. And there's like podcasts about it, et cetera, et cetera. And then – 
so you had this, then you, your career kind of took a turn. There was an illness, but then you were home. And then, so, and this brings us to how I found you, which is something called the, the Rusty Bucket Kids. And yeah. um, so tell me a little bit about, you don't have to get into the illness, obviously, but if you don't want to, but like, what was that transition like for you? It, it was, uh, you know, I was starting to kind of not do acting. I was having to stay close to home. I, I had done a staged performance of Peter Pan and, you know, if, if, if the crew who had not worked, who had worked with me before had not known me, I would have felt like they probably would have lynched me because literally I'd be wheelchaired up to the wings oh, man. and then I'd go out and do my performance and then I'd go back to the wheelchair and go get sick and, yeah. It, it really, I went from 210 pounds down to 148. Um, basically surgery, they, they, the surgery and prayer saved my life. I mean, that, that really is, uh-huh. uh, we never did have a diagnosis until after the surgery. Okay. Um, and so, uh, and it was about a two year, three year window that it got progressively worse to the June, 2009, um, surgery uh-huh. period. Okay. Um, I, during that time, I was home a lot Mm -hmm. and my daughter was homeschooled. My son was, uh, sort of in preschool kindergarten. So he was going and being with people over at the Waldorf school that we were attending, but my daughter was, was homeschooling at this point. And she knew I liked doing the film and the television and and that stuff. I was doing a lot of commercials. Uh I was playing a pit crew chief in many NASCAR commercials, (laughs) uh, Cool. I shot the last one, last commercial campaign with, um, uh, I was going to say not, not Rusty Wallace. I did one with Rusty Wallace, but, uh, Dale Earnhardt, uh-huh. um, I did a campaign that, that ended up being pulled because he got killed. It was in out there, but it got scaled back and we put other, uh, race car drivers in and, yeah. uh, but, but anyway, so she knew I liked doing this and now here I was restricted. I couldn't, I mean, there were days I just spent in bed. I never got out. Yeah. Meals got brought to me. Yeah. And at one point she, you know, she said, you know, if you ever get better, you know, why don't you, you know, do something for John Coleman and I, cause they were in theater, they were doing shows. Uh, they were very talented, um, in their own right. Uh, and so, um, as I started to think about that, I started thinking of things. I mean, I had a lot of time. I was laying in bed, you know, what do you, what do you do? And so I wrote up ideas and that's really where the uh, impetus for the Rusty Bucket Kids came from, mm-hmm. was I thought, how cool would it be if a couple of young kids would learn from their grandfather that they could travel back in time and visit some of America's greatest uh, historical figures while those figures are still in their teenage years? Mm-hmm. I knew growing up that the most informative years for me were my teenage years. It it. I didn't mature until my, well, they say mid twenties, that's probably my mid thirties, <laughs> but uh, you know, so, you know, I, uh, cause that's when I finally decided to go back into acting and, and do what I wanted to do instead of doing stuff for everybody else. But you know, I, I really sensed that, that it would be cool to visit these like Abe Lincoln at the age of 15, you know, and, and be visited by someone that's still yet younger than the people they're visiting. Because partly that was an age demographic thing. I wanted to attract as wide an audience in those younger age brackets as I could. And I knew my content would be safe for any age. So that, that's where I packaged it. Mm-hmm. And so I, I wrote these, uh, this story up into a treatment. 
And I, I then got real sick over a couple of months and then had the surgery in June. During my hospital stay, I mean, once I had control of the morphine button, <laughs> and and I and, and I I could temper the volume. In other words, I was willing to go as far into the pain as I could before I tapped that because I wanted to be able to write and and use my laptop because I got a laptop to have at the at the hospital, and I was there for about ten days because it, it I they needed to get my strength back. I was that was the big issue. I wrote more detail and fleshed this out. And while in the hospital, I reached out to Kevin McDermott, who at the time had just sold his uh, um, children's actor's circle uh, business in Los Angeles. He was a um, uh, tra trained young talent. Uh, people like, uh, oh, the guy from Dawson's Creek. And I think of that because it was shot yeah, here. Yeah, that's a um, Carolina thing. Yeah, um, the, the fellow that starred in that, and I apologize that I don't know his name. Um, Vanderbeek. Yes, J yeah. yes, James, okay. James, yes. He um, uh, and, and and a nice fellow. I met him once when I got to go down there, and there was a sort of a party, and he's a nice guy. But uh, he started at Kevin's uh, training ground in in California, in Los Angeles. Um, he had a number of young people that have come through that are became solid working actors. Um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, uh, is one of them. So he's, yeah, so he has, as they've grown up, he's had these wonderful people he could, you know, call and talk to and, and I'm yeah. talking to so-and-so and, you know, yeah. they take his call. So that, that's been really nice. But I reached out to him because he still was working with children up to that point. Well, now he was retired, sold his business and had gone, I think he was in Europe at the time when I found him. And he so liked the idea. I asked him if he'd come to North Carolina spend a month and try to flesh this out with me and see if we could turn this into what I wanted at that time was to create a TV pilot. Because that's the other thing during my illness is it became clear researching the industry because I had all this time to read about the industry mm -hmm. is that I believed in 2007 that we were going to have an explosion of a demand for television content because there'd be so many successful platforms distributing it. And I saw Netflix going that way. I saw a number of properties because now I was reading business stuff because uh -huh. I was reading. And right. most of that stuff, you know, NAB and all these are, are business related. And I was connecting all the dots. You know, I just, it was easy to connect the dots. And right. I did. And so once the dots were connected, I realized, oh, I need to be making my own content because there's going to be a demand for it. And the people that make theirs first, when they go, we need it. Oh, they got it. Oh, let, let's have his. Yeah. It's ready to go. Smart. It's ready to go. Very smart. And so I, I went that route and I basically tried the Hollywood model in the community that I'm in. And while Kevin was here that during that summer, as I continued to put on weight and, you know, get, get, get healthier, um, he'd started working with my two kids on fleshing out script. In other words, does he hear young people? Oh, they wouldn't say it that way. Let's write, rewrite it like right. this. Right. He was really good at that. Um, I think he did some of that on the Free Willy uh, movie series because I know he worked on that. He worked on a number of projects. Yeah. So anyway, he he fleshed that stuff out and then started talking to other members of the community and having them read the script. And and he then wanted to direct it. I said that was fine. Um, I gave him the primary writing credit for the uh, for the teleplay because um, it is mostly him. And so uh, you know, and and we went and we we did a really good job creating a pilot. Um, we were thrilled when my having cast known television personalities from WRL Television in Raleigh, which 
I, I mention them because it's owned by the, the, the Goodman family, or it's, it's a capital broadcasting company, which is primarily owned by the Goodman family. And I've, I've known Jim Goodman Sr. peripherally um, since the mid-70s when I would go over to the station as a 12, 13, 14-year-old and, and hang out there because I knew one of the, the news anchors who ended up playing the grandpa in my TV series. Mm-hmm. Um, he had retired, and I kind of brought him out, which the local community loved. Uh, and then I cast another person that was, at the time, an anchor from the station. And I felt like that was strategic because that station would not want those uh, anchors or a talent on another station in this market. And clearly, I was getting enough uh, media coverage, print, uh, and television and radio because I hadn't picked a station, but I kept saying I had one, you know, I, 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 and I gotta be honest and I, and I've told this to other people more publicly. I really didn't have a guarantee I'd be on WRAL's, uh, station and they were the number one station in the market and they are, um, at the time they were the CBS affiliate. Now they've gone back to being the NBC affiliate. But, um, if Jim Goodman, does something, everybody pays attention. And, and here's why. He was behind the digital recording world coming together in the uh, early 80s. We have CDs because of that. Wow. He had the first rendition of high-def television in his, his studios. He, he invested in high-def to lead the direction where it would go. When the FCC set the standards, they pointed to WRAL as, then you want to know what you do? There you go, because that's the standard. And so they were in their seventh or eighth generation of HD there when some stations were just finally putting high def into their broadcast stations. And so people pay attention to when he does things. Um, he's invested in companies uh, with Mark Cuban and other folks. Um, he's, he is a serial investor. He owns the Durham Bulls baseball team. Um, his sons are equally as brilliant in him in business. One's focusing on their real estate portfolio, and the other, of course, has helped emerge the tech, some of the technologies that now we're even using in, in what we do today. Um, and, and they're still considered a well-respected local brand. So having them broadcast our show and owning the Nielsen broadcast rating during that time slot that day yeah. um, and then getting the Emmy nominations, uh, it, 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 it created a lot of windows, doors, and opportunities that still to this day we're working on. Uh, we've got a 10th anniversary film that we're working on uh, that goes to, to the three-episode series we did. Um, and, you know, it's it, it it's been a fun, fun business. Yeah. And I've been thrilled that I've been able to do this with my family, too. Um, I think that was the interesting part. When my daughter said, why can't you make something for us? Um, the first thing that went through my head is, oh my God, it's awful when producers hire their family. It's just <laughs> awful. Uh-huh. I, 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 I take that back to a point because I do think of like Kirk Douglas and Michael Douglas. There are some generational families that do have success in them. Right. And when I think of my mom and I think of me, I think my kids and, and they not, it isn't that they just are good at play acting because they were young. I mean, they learned uh, Suzuki violin. They started when they were like five years old. So they they've both they've got great ears. They're vocally well suited. They play instruments. Um, I mean, they have disciplines in in the homeschooling portion uh, for the one that was homeschooled. Um, so you know they they're pretty well rounded individuals. Uh, but they really did do a good job with it. And uh, they've come back several times as we've shot other episodes as they've aged. Uh, I'm looking forward to working with them here on this future stuff too. And you know, where there's talent, people know it and people yeah. see it. Yeah. So it sounds like there's a lot 
in the works still. So two sort of follow-up questions on that. One is how can people find and watch the Rusty Bucket Kids? Is it available digitally? Is it uh, at this point, is it a... it's a collector's it, it is, item. Well, it, it's not. It's uh, the DVDs are. Although I may be doing a, a new DVD pressing, I've I've actually had people post pictures of themselves saying, "Hey, I found a, the DVD." You know, yeah. I've got a, a copy. Um, the uh, I don't want to say it's embargoed. We we are getting ready to go up on uh, several of the networks in preparation for our tenth anniversary. Okay. You know, we're 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 kind of pushing it out there. Amoeba TV has it. Okay. They actually do have it. You know, I get a little check every quarter from them. Okay. Um, so, so they do have it there, and it is watched. Um, we do have a website, and there's a, a, a webmaster that I hired recently who's working on a new set of skins for the website. But what's there is there. And anyone that is registered for it uh, has gotten a follow-up email that gives them the link to uh-huh. go be able to watch uh, oh, cool. the entire original broadcast episode. There are several iterations of that now that have, have been cut uh, because we did shoot additional uh, episodes to kind of every summer we just did a little extra because the whole idea with this show was, although to do more episodes than we did, there's another story in that and we can do that another time. But, <laughs> um, but, but the reality was is that we knew that we wanted it to be a story about a, a person who really was like looking back over a period of time, but we would start telling the story now. And as the, as the, as the young girl, Roxana aged to a college age student, we'd have this, what was hoped would be about four episodes every year shot. And, and then using second screen and some of the social media content technologies that now are being used by a lot of television shows, um, would allow us to continue to tell that story and use components of it over a period of time and, and re- basically re-edit episodes. Mm-hmm. In other words, go back and pull footage forward. Right. And, uh, you know, we even took our original high-def footage we shot for this original pilot and had it uh, upgraded to 4K because we, as soon as 4K was available, we were shooting in 4K uh-huh. so that we'd, we'd keep up with the various platforms at the minimum standards now, which... Really, everybody wants you shooting in 4K. They may not want you to deliver it yet in 4K, but they want you shooting in 4K. Sure. So, okay. Well, there's there's a lot to look forward to. The website is rustybucketkids.com. Yes, rustybucketkids.com or therustybucketkids.com. The, doesn't okay. matter. Okay, cool. And you can sign up and, and check it out. I watched uh, the sizzle reel, which is, uh, it was pretty, it's really cool. Like, it's a, it's a really clever idea and there's trains and there's time i mean it's really and and i think that the way that you uh sell it you know it really is you get the feel for exactly what it is it's it's like a really okay thing for kids to watch it's a really okay thing for families to watch and there's some education in it and i think the cool one of the coolest parts that you spoke to a little bit is that you filmed everything locally like in the town of apex where uh you know there it's like you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it could could be a little bit quaint. Is that a is that a fair word to use? <laughs> yep. Okay. <laughs> One of the articles about our show was like um, Mayberry comes to Apex. Yeah, right. Um, and, and there's there's a there's like you know, I think that whether you meant to or not, I mean, I know you have a film festival that you do too, and I know that um, I think that you. May you probably know this, but you're drawn to this kind of idyllic 
um, very uh, nice and kind way and you come across that way in conversation. Um, and one of the people that you um, honored at your film festival was the actual beaver from Leave it to Beaver, right? So like you are- Jerry Mathers. Yeah, you're connecting this time of like- just it was just okay like parents knew it was oh this was okay and i think that for the rusty bucket kids parents knew it was okay and i think that going forward whatever comes out of this as we approach the 10th anniversary it's going to be okay and i think that that's an amazing gift it it is uh it it was uh jerry mathers was our inaugural recipient of the charlie gaddy lifetime achievement award and he'd been someone I had hired and used in a film before. Oh. Um, and, you know, and sometimes it's nice. In this business, you are able to maintain relationships. Mm-hmm. You maybe not touch base every day, but you can go a year or two and, and reach out. And, and if you've had a good experience with someone, you're going to be able to get through to them or their assistant mm-hmm. and, and, and get an answer to a question or, or even perhaps get them to call you back because they had a good experience with yeah. you. Um, and, and that really speaks volumes uh, on a completely side note. But one of the things I learned during my time in LA, you know, getting my wheat feet wet there and getting into the commercial markets was I was hearing things about Harvey Weinstein in the rumor mill, oh strictly gosh. the rumor mill. Yeah. But, but that was in the late nineties, you know, and, and to me it was like, man, if, if that's being said, I mean, if these people, I mean, if they if his people heard any of these people saying that, none of these people would be cast. And then I realized, hmm, that may be part of the problem too because I would hear when someone would say that. And I mean, I, I do not, I mean, I'm, I'm going to say it. I, I can't identify the person who said it, but she said, well, if I had a chance to take care of him and become a star in his movie, I'd be there. And then I realized, well, gosh, Sharon Stone said that about her movie, uh-huh. that she went and did things she shouldn't have done and, and she got cast. There's a two-way street there. It, it's sad. Doesn't justify anything he did. He was a bad guy. Yep. And clearly, I hope he get the New York Police Department <laughs> arrests him and takes care of him. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, you're the opposite, it sounds like. So I, I feel oh, like... I, I am the opposite in that way. But, you know, you made a comment earlier, uh, and I have it all together, and I seem to be doing great. It doesn't mean that even though I like to do a great kid-friendly program, that I'm a perfect person. Well, I, I gave right. up a long time ago feeling like, I was perfect. No. I, I don't know anybody that is. I, I would say less a perfect person, more a person that, uh, f- for lack of, you know, my kid is major into baseball and Little League. You have your eye on the ball. Yes. So that's fair, it. Fair Got enough. my eye on the ball. Yeah. So, John, it's been amazing uh, hearing your story <laughs> and talking to you. You have such a, a breadth and depth of experience and, um, I'm going to watch that last episode of season one of the West Wing and cheer you on when you're doing your stunts. And we're gonna... and, then, and then the opening. Watch the watch the opening as well. Yeah. And uh, season two. Season two. Yes. Right, right, right. Yes, Maybe yes, we'll yes, see, yes, yes. Yeah. So uh, I'm a big fan and I can't thank you enough for your time. Thank you, Mike. I enjoyed it so much. Anytime you want to talk, just reach out. All right. Um, Bye-bye. Bye. I will definitely reach out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. Oh my gosh. I feel like we just like barely scratched the surface. Uh, wow. People like uh, it's amazing. Cause you know, uh, Southern living magazine has written a piece that they're, they're holding for, uh, when we relaunch, um, bucket, but uh-huh. they had a photographer and a writer here 
on another story. And so they, they, they jumped on us because they liked the story that was in our state magazine. I think that might've been one of the ones I yeah, sent you. Me, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and so, well, the person that wrote that article's spouse writes the, uh, does contract writing here for a Southern living magazine as well. And so they were supposed to interview me for a half hour. Uh-huh. I gave them, you know, I, I, Three hours later, it was like, <laughs> "Yo, I could see that." Ooh, easily. I gotta get, I gotta get, I gotta get something to eat. And I was like, "Oh my gosh, we've really gone late." Look, there's plenty of great places here. They're like, "Well, no, can, can we, can we continue this conversation over yeah. lunch?" Yeah, man. <laughs> yeah. You have, you have, like, you have the gift. Oh, uh, okay, all right. <laughs> you know, well, you know, I'm a storyteller. You're a storyteller, and it's amazing. And I, I, there's, there's more. So I would love to do a part two at some point um, maybe yeah. when you're ready to relaunch or I think there's other things to talk about in terms of like for a kid what does it mean to be a movie producer what goes into like the acting like I, there's a, there's a lot so uh, I do this was a long time coming like we've been communicating for a while and I'm glad we got it together and did it and um, I uh, feel like I made a new friend today so thanks so much John hey seeds planted you know yep, totally alright bud Thank take you. care have take a care. great weekend bye 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 So there you have it, John Demers, Rusty Bucket Kids, Heroes of History, 10th anniversary coming soon. Hopefully we'll be able to check that out because it was really cool getting to know John and hear a little bit of his story and and it's pretty wide ranging and that's always really fun. It's fun for me to talk to people like that and to learn about them. So thanks John, much, much, much appreciated. And thanks to you for listening. If you wanted to rate in iTunes, that would be cool. Apple Podcasts. There's a star system. A star system. Thanks a lot. Talk to you real soon. Mike at goodstuffpod.com. At goodstuffpod on social media. Have a great rest of your week. Okay? Okay. Stuff.